I know it's not quite Thanksgiving, but the uh, stores are certainly gearing up for Christmas. And certainly at Christmas, many families will give gifts, a lot of different holiday traditions, but giving of gifts is a fairly common one here in the States. And suppose that you saw someone giving a gift, and you thought, hmm, that looks interesting, and you walked up to that person, and you said, hey, here's 50 bucks, I want to be able to give that same gift to people. How would that strike you? Probably strike us at, as at least a little bit odd, perhaps rude. And we see something a little bit similar in our passage this morning. We see a man who saw the giving of the Holy Spirit as an opportunity to buy in to doing what seemed to be pleasing the people, and perhaps even as a chance to serve himself by regaining his own popularity. So turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 8, and we'll pick up where we left off with the story of Stephen. Last Sunday, we kind of finished up with that first phrase in chapter 8 and verse 1, that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. But these first few verses of chapter 8 are the wrapping up of Stephen's story. But they also serve as the introduction, the transition into the, what we're going to look at this morning. So that's why I wanted us to see them today. As we work through this passage, I think we'll notice several contrasts. First, we see the contrast between sorrow in these first few verses and then the rejoicing that we see, for example, in verse 8. Then we also see the contrast between genuine Christianity and a magical approach that is potentially demonic. We see that contrast in the middle part of this passage. And then finally, we see the contrast between genuine and false conversion, particularly at the end of this section. Also, I think it would be helpful for us to note the important character. Certainly, Stephen has just passed off the scene as he's been as he's been stoned, but Saul is introduced to us, and he is not the major focus in this chapter. We'll see him picked up in chapter 9, but he's certainly mentioned first in this chapter. Philip is the, the first one that we notice specifically uh, going down to Samaria and preaching the gospel, and he's an important figure both in this passage and in what we'll look at next, next week. Uh, we also see the crowds who are responding to Philip, we see particularly Simon the Magician, who seems to respond to Philip's message as well. But then uh, the contrast with uh, what seems to be genuine conversion versus his later actions. And then we see the apostles, specifically Peter and John, coming down from Jerusalem. And so as we start to work our way through this passage, I think we would also uh, do well to return to the theme of Acts 1 and verse 8. If we think of that as, to a certain extent, governing the entirety of the book of Acts and seeing how God unfolds the building of the church through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we see the gospel spreading not just from Jerusalem and the surrounding region of Judea, but also over into Samaria. And if last week emphasized the idea of you will be my witnesses, particularly in the case of Stephen following the examples of the apostles, uh, certainly this week we see the other part of Acts 1-8, that the gospel spreads from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And how does that take place? I think first of all we see in verses 1 through 4 that persecution didn't destroy the church. And we might pause and think about that for a minute, and we would expect that persecution would have the opposite effect, that persecution would be that which would be the undoing of the church. And certainly we see in verse 1, the second half there, that persecution did scatter the church. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. We have to ask ourselves a couple of questions. One is, was this 
persecution a sign of God's judgment? Because certainly for me it has echoes of the story of the Tower of Babel, right? Here's people who are, who are sort of staying in one place. God had said multiply, spread out, and they were all staying in one place, particularly in the exercise of false worship. And God used something to scatter them. He used the confusion of their languages to scatter them. Was this a sign of judgment on the early church? I don't think that it was a sign of judgment per se, but I do think that it was a clear uh, circumstance that God arranged to sort of force the early church to spread out. And this idea of them being scattered, I think that there are at least two pictures that we might think of in Scripture of people being scattered. Uh, we think of Jesus' perspective on the people of Israel. He said they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're scattered, leaderless, without direction, potentially in danger. I don't think that that's the picture that we see here. I think here we see the picture of scattering as of seed. So, for example, uh, I'm sure after the hot summer you might have had some bare patches in your lawn. I know I certainly did. And so what I did probably about a month, month and a half ago, went down to Lowe's, I got some grass seed, and I scattered it out. I can always tell how I scattered the grass seed, particularly when I do it by hand, because it tends to come up in little rows instead of being evenly distributed. And I know you can get one of the things that sort of slings it all evenly, and I had one, and I was just in a hurry, and I didn't go dig it out of the shed, I just did it by hand. But I had these neat little rows, and the seed was scattered, and then it came up and it filled in the bare patches. In the same way, we could look at the persecution as being something that would stamp out the early church or like seed, something that would sort of fling them out and then more people would trust in Christ in more places in the surrounding regions. I think that that's what taking, is what is taking place here. Uh, we see in verse 2 a follow-up to chapter 6 and 7, some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. And as we see this, we say, well, what does that have to do with the scattering? This is sort of the wrapping up of Stephen's story. And it seems that perhaps this takes place in the process of everyone being scattered. And in the face of those circumstances, you have to ask yourself, would I be willing to do that? Would I be willing to be publicly identified with a man who was just stoned for blasphemy, uh, particularly what we see in the next verse with Saul going aggressively after the church and the significant opposition of the religious leaders to the spread of the gospel, would I be willing to show honor to a man who clearly was stoned to death for blasphemy and perhaps accept personal risk to do what I believe was right in terms of honoring him? And yet that's what these men did. Uh, we also, going back to uh, verse 1 for just a moment, why did the apostles stay in Jerusalem? I think the apostles stayed in Jerusalem because God had called them to lead the church there through this foundational period. And we'd also seen from previous chapters in Acts that they were willing to accept the reality that some of them could and eventually would be martyred for following Christ. And I wouldn't say that everyone else was afraid and that's why they left, but certainly there's a level of commitment of the apostles that I think differed in the sense of their obligation, their duty, versus the rest of the church. I also think that it's interesting to note that some have looked at this passage in, in light of the fact that Philip is the one who's going and uh, taking the gospel to Samaria, that it's quite possible that the opposition was primarily against the Hellenistic Jews who had joined the church. 
Uh, certainly that's a speculation, but it's something that if, as you look at the passage is certainly a possibility. And so again, that would help to explain why the apostles remained in Jerusalem. But for those who remain, verse 3, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. And I think that that's an expansion, a development of verse 1. What did the persecution look like? The persecution looked like Saul would come to people's houses who professed to follow Christ, and just like the apostles were put into prison for proclaiming Christ and the resurrection, so too these early believers were also put into prison. And this has been the experience of the church at different stages throughout history. That is, to follow Christ may mean that you lose your job. It may mean that you lose your house. It may mean that you lose your freedom. It may mean that you lose your life. And all of those things, I think, were at stake for the early church, particularly the first three. And so we would think that Saul's efforts would be successful, that he would stamp out the church, it would be done, and the church would die. But look at verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And again, going back to that image of seed, the people who were scattered were not silent. They were not, uh, I think, afraid to the extent that we might expect them to be afraid. Certainly, I'm sure there was fear. But they went about doing what God wanted them to do, which was to proclaim the message about Jesus. And that, in turn, uh, built the early church. I think connected with this, it's important for us to realize the church is not dependent on any one person. That doesn't mean that we don't have an important role to play in what God is doing, but God can certainly move the church forward without me, without you, without some other person. The church went on without Stephen. Did Stephen have a huge impact? Yes. Should we serve God faithfully and follow his example? Yes. Can God in his power overcome the obstacle of even the death of someone who's faithful and devout and preaching the word? Yes. And sometimes the death of someone like that is the occasion for others realizing that they need to be more serious about God and more faithful at proclaiming God's word. Not always, but sometimes. I think we've certainly seen that uh, even in more recent examples of, of stories that we're familiar with. So the church dispersed and grew. So we would expect that persecution would stamp out the church, but it didn't. Instead, it grew the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. And those first four verses sort of set the stage for what we're going to see in the middle part of the chapter, verses 5 through 24. Of those who had been scattered, who went about preaching the word, we come and we meet Philip, verse 5. And we see that Philip proclaimed Christ while performing various signs. And all of these things, I think, in verses 5 through 24, is God expanding the church into Samaria. So Philip proclaimed Christ while performing signs. He is a Hellenistic Jew. He is one of the early deacons of the church in Jerusalem. We were introduced to him in uh, chapter 6. And in chapter 6, it said that there was Stephen, a man full of faith into the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And so he is one of these who is mentioned in this list of men who are serving the early church, and now that they are being scattered, he is going around preaching the gospel. And it is interesting that he goes down to Samaria. On the one hand, think about the situation with the widows back in Acts 6. They experienced what it was like to potentially be overlooked, possibly 
because of a different ethnic background. So Stephen had perhaps some experience with ministering to people in that context. But it was an even greater step for him to come over here to Samaria. What was the deal with Samaria? Samaria was not just a neighboring region overseen by the Romans, but it was a place in which a majority of people who lived there were not pure-blooded Jews. Hellenistic Jews were pure-blooded Jews, still of the tribes of Israel and so forth, who had been scattered and so they spoke Greek and had slightly different customs. But you come over to Samaria and you have people who had intermarried with surrounding nations. And so there was this question of, do they really even belong with Israel anymore? There's this tension. Think back to Jesus and the, the woman at the well. Jesus goes down through Samaria instead of taking the long way around. And the disciples marvel because he's speaking with someone who is a Samaritan and he's speaking with someone who is clearly, in John 4, a woman who is living a wicked life. And so both those things sort of summed up probably the Jewish perspective on the Samaritans. They don't follow God the right way. Some of them don't even follow God at all. They're not really part of us. And yet Philip saw as he is pushed out of Jerusalem by persecution, he saw an opportunity and perhaps even a responsibility to take the gospel to this group of people. Along these lines, are you and I willing to take the gospel to people whom others may despise? There's a tension for us in the church to say, we want to look nice and act nice, and be nice and be around other people who are the same way. And I get that. If you go and take the gospel to people who are lost and apart from God, you're going to hear people swear, you're going to see people do things that are clearly wicked, and it's not going to be comfortable. But God calls us to take the gospel not just to the people who are just like us, not to the people who are religious but lost, but to everybody. That's what Philip is doing here, and I think that that sets an example for us as well. We notice that the people watch him closely in verses 6 and 7 as he preaches and as he performs these signs. So Philip went down to the city of Samaria, began proclaiming Christ. They were with one accord, giving attention to what was said by him as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. It's important to remember that, like the ministry of Jesus, the signs and the miracles did not determine the outcome in terms of whether or not people believed. Sometimes we look at that and we say, if only somebody would, would be raised from the dead today, if only somebody would have a demon cast out of them today, if only whatever it might be, if I could be the one uh, appointed by God to go around and have that sort of ministry and that came along with the gospel ministry then more people would be saved but think about what Jesus said in the story of the rich man and Lazarus they have the law and the prophets if that does not convince them of their sinfulness and if hearing the message about me from those books of the Bible is not sufficient for them to believe in me as the Messiah even if one goes back from the dead, they will not believe. Why then? What was the point of God even sending these signs? It was to show that this was God's power and God's message, particularly in these early days of the church. And certainly there are 
uh, instances where these are counterfeited. Think back to uh, Moses and the, uh, the magicians of Pharaoh and the attempt to counterfeit that, which I think has echoes in this story as well. But clearly, uh, Steve, uh, Philip is preaching the gospel. We know that as we come down to verse 12, Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. So that's the content of his message. It's accompanied by these signs. Everyone is watching him closely. What's the response to God's work here? There was much rejoicing in that city. Certainly, if you had someone who had been afflicted by demon possession and you saw that person freed of that affliction, you would rejoice. Certainly, if you saw someone who was lame from birth or blind from birth, like those that Jesus healed, now being able to see, now being able to walk, you would rejoice. But does that rejoicing always lead to genuine conversion? We see in the next section here uh, a man named Simon. And we, I think we could sum up this section by saying Simon the magician goes from amazing to being amazed. Why do I say that? Look at verse 9. There's a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. Just as an aside, when Simon Peter comes down from Jerusalem, we have sort of a conflict between these two Simons. We'll note that in a moment. I just thought that was an interesting detail. Uh, but before we get to that, what, is, what was his practice? He practiced magic in the city and astonished the people of Samaria. So whatever it was that he was doing, and it doesn't lay out specifically what he was doing, but he was doing something that was notable and that caused people to draw attention to him, and whether that was through um, trickery or whether it was through the power of Satan, clearly it is someone who is uh, doing this of himself and not doing it toward God. And yet the people were looking at this, and they were deceived, and they said, this man is what is called the great power of God, and they were giving him attention. And so as we... Um, we look at this, we note, I think, his pride. He claimed to be someone great. We note the source of his magic, although the people attributed it to God, I don't believe it was truly God's power. And this was something that had been going on for a long period of time. It wasn't something that he just did for a little while, but a long period of time. All those things, I think, will factor into what we see a little bit later in the story. What's the response of the people? Verse 12, there's a turning point. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. So what do we see here? We see the same thing happening in Samaria that we saw in Acts 2 and in other places. People heard the gospel message. They believe. They turn away from what they were following before. They turn to follow Christ. They show it by being baptized. And we could say also added to the church based on what we see of, of how this worked earlier in Acts. And so that word but contrasts with what Simon was doing versus what the gospel was claiming and promising and what they believed in. And we see even Simon himself appears to be converted. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. So what do we have? We have someone who is 
practicing magic, probably by Satan's power, because it, it seems to be set in contrast to God's power. We have him observing the people, hearing the message of God and turning away from this, turning to the gospel. He himself does the same thing. I think it's interesting when you look at what it says at the end of verse 13, that as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Notice what Simon's focus was on. I did amazing things. Now they're doing amazing things. I think that that's significant with what we see in the next part of the chapter because we might look at that and say, wow, he has just been overwhelmed by the power of God and his life has completely changed. But notice what it is he's focusing on. He's not focusing on the amazing things about the gospel. He's focusing on the signs and wonders that Philip was performing. We come now to the apostles bringing the signs of the Spirit to Samaria. We see this in verses 14 to 24. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, the apostles were the ones through whom the Spirit was given. This was important for several reasons. For one, it created a sense of unity in the early church because had this sort of been this thing happening off by itself and the apostles had no connection to it, the Jews in Jerusalem would have been very unlikely to have accepted this as a genuine work of God. Maybe even more important than that, the apostles were the ones that God had sent out to establish the early church. They were God's representatives. They were the ones who specifically were tasked with being God's witnesses. And so that it was important for them to come and observe and see what was going on. Furthermore, this bringing of the Spirit is a, a further mark of the fact that this is genuinely God's work that's being accomplished in Samaria. And so we see this accompanying what God is doing in Acts 2, in Acts 8 here, and then also in Acts 10 when the gospel goes first to the Gentiles. What is this giving of the Spirit? We might look at this, and at first read, we might think that this is saying they didn't have the Holy Spirit, or maybe that they didn't even believe, and then they uh, received the Spirit, and now they're actually Christians. They're following God. But note the order of what's happening here. It says they have been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And if we look at that in verse 12, what went before was belief. They believed the message, they were baptized. We know from other passages of Scripture, that means that they had the Holy Spirit already having done the work of regeneration in their hearts and minds, already dwelling within them. What then was the gift that Peter and John bring to them as they come down from Jerusalem? It's verse 16, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. In verse 17, they received the Holy Spirit. What did that look like in, look like in Acts chapter 2? Uh, turn back with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 2, and we'll just read verses 1 through 4, because I think it's good to be reminded of what it looked like. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So there's the sound of the wind, the visible sign of fire, and then there's the verbal utterance of uh, the gospel, the truth about God. And all of these things were evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit. So what is the parallel to what's happening here in Acts 8 and Acts 2 and other places in the Bible? In the same way that the Holy Spirit came upon David as he ruled as king, in the same way that the Holy Spirit came upon uh, Samson to give him great strength as he judged the nation of Israel uh, before the kings were established in Israel, in the same way that the craftsmen of the temple were filled with the Spirit, especially enabling to do their job well, so too in the book of Acts we see the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a special and a particular way, a filling and enabling for ministry that is evidenced in this context by outward signs. Now, I will admit to you that these verses do not say, and they spoke in tongues, and there was t uh, tongues of fire visible, and there was a sound of a rushing wind. So we don't know which of those three things took place. But I think we can argue from the text that there's some sort of visible sign going on because of what Simon's next response is, Verse 18, when Simon saw the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands. Think back to what Simon was interested in. Simon was interested in the excitement, the amazingness, the flashiness of the miracles and the signs and wonders. If it's just, they come, they pray, they say, okay, now you have the Spirit and there's no outward sign, why would Simon be interested? And so that's my argument for why the same thing is happening here, even though it doesn't go into as much detail as it does in Acts chapter 2. So, to summarize what's going on in these few verses, all Christians receive the Spirit at conversion. I would also argue that in the Old Testament, likewise, those who believed in God received the Holy Spirit, although their understanding of that was certainly different, and we have much more truth about that in the New Testament that explains what that looks like. So all Christians have the Spirit. The thing that was in view here in Acts chapter 8 was like what we saw in Acts 2 and like what we'll see in Acts 10, and that is a filling of the Spirit, a testifying that the gospel has come to a new group of people, and a sign that the church is expanding into a new region. What's Simon's response? We see this in verses 18 through 24. When Simon saw the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon's response was a clear sign that his heart was not right before God. There's two possibilities. One is that he was significantly immature in his understanding of what it meant to follow God. The more likely one that I think is going on is that he didn't actually understand what the gospel was about. And he went through the uh, seeming acceptance of the gospel, belief, the outward sign of acceptance, baptism, but his heart revealed that he didn't actually get salvation and that he had not actually received 
the presence of the Spirit. Why do I say that? First of all, Peter sharply rebukes him in verse 20. Furthermore, this attitude of buying it with money, think back to what his experience had been. I'm amazing the people with magical marvels and mysteries, probably because every other passage that I can think of in the New Testament that talks about false teachers and those who are associated with, uh, with demonic power, almost inevitably there is a component of greed and financial gain. Think of the girl who's demon-possessed. Paul cast out the demon. Why are they mad? Because she stopped making them money by not being able to foretell the future. Think about the false teachers that Peter warns about. What does he say? These are people who love money, who are full of greed. Paul says the same thing in First and Second Timothy. And so false teachers, what we know of false teachers in the early church, was that there was a component of greed and financial gain. And so when... When uh, Simon comes before the apostles and says, I want to buy this, he's saying, hey, give me your trade secret. I'll pay you a lot of money for it. I want to be able to do this same thing. Why? Probably because he's no longer content for the spotlight to be on the apostles, or specifically Philip and then the apostles, and the giving of the Holy Spirit. He says, I want some of that focus too. Note the contrast between what Peter says here and what Peter had said back in Acts 3 and verse 6. Peter says, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. What did he say in Acts 3 and verse 6 when the uh, layman asked him for, basically, can you give me something? Peter and, gold said, S Peter and John said, Silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have I give you. It's the power of the Spirit. So note the contrast there. Simon wants to buy something that you can't buy or constrain God to give to you. This seems to be a sign of pride, of greed, of a lack of genuine conversion. What else? Look at Peter's rebuke. May your silver perish with you. That's pretty strong language. Uh, those who according to John 3.16, believe and have a relationship with Jesus, will not perish, but have eternal life. And here, Peter says, may your money perish with you. Furthermore, he says, you have no part or portion in this matter. That same sort of language, they have no part of me. It's how Jesus described Judas Iscariot, right? Look at verse 22. Repent of this wickedness. Pray that if possible, this might be forgiven you. There's this, this conditional idea of theoretically, you may not repent and you may not be right with God, which I think in Peter's mind means you're condemned. And then verse 23, For I see you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. What sort of bitterness is it? It's a bitter jealousy that looks at what he had and what the apostles have and says, I want that in the way that they have it so that I can have it for myself again. The bondage of iniquity, Paul says in Romans 6, that you were slaves to sin and now you're slaves to righteousness. So if you're in bondage to iniquity, you either have a sin you need to deal with before God or if that characterizes your life, it means 
You don't even know God because we're not slaves to sin anymore. Finally, his response to Peter's rebuke uh, seems a little half-hearted. Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you said may come upon me. How many of you as a little kid knew you were in trouble? You don't have to raise your hand, but we could all raise our hands, right? A lot of times, I mean, just speaking from experience, and maybe you all were a whole lot more righteous than I was as a kid, or, or even now, a lot of times, we are not necessarily upset that we did something wrong. We're upset because we know we have to go sit in our room, or go through some kind of punishment, or lose out on something that we really want. Do you see that kind of attitude in Simon here? Peter basically said, you need to pray and repent so that you're not condemned and you perish with your money. And he says, I don't want any of that bad stuff to happen to me. doesn't seem that he's experiencing genuine repentance. And I, hopefully I'm not reading into this, but just as you look at the text, the sense of it seems to be, he didn't get it. And then Luke just stops there. He doesn't say what happens to him. Why? Because I think he wants us to ask that question of ourselves. Do we look at the Christian life as an opportunity for self-advancement, for gain, for buying things from God? Or do we see it as a gift, as something connected with genuine repentance, something where we do not have the ability to bind God to our will, but we must submit ourselves to his? Those are two conflicting and opposing viewpoints of what religion looks like. I'm in it for money, for power, for fame, or I'm in it because I genuinely experience God's power, my life is transformed, and I'm going to do what God wants, not what I want. And so Simon's example stands here, I think, as a warning, just like Ananias and Sapphira had greed in their hearts and lied to the Holy Spirit. Here's a man who has greed in his heart, tries to buy the Holy Spirit, seemingly for his own advancement. How do you approach God? Related to this, how do you deal with sin? Do you have a half-hearted sort of response like Simon did? Or do you say, sin is sin, it's wrong, and I need to deal with it? And I, I've been arguing that this was someone who seemingly was not genuinely converted, but at the same time as believers, we still need to deal with our sin. We will not perish if we have trusted in Christ, but sin certainly creates a barrier between us and God, practically and in terms of the sense of our relationship with Him. And so that's something that we need to deal with. And so I think that we need to recognize that God's Spirit, particularly God's special enabling for ministry, is a gift that we receive. Do we receive the same sort of gift in a dramatic outpouring of the Spirit that we see in Acts 2, 8, and 10? No. Does God gift everyone through His Spirit for ministry of the church? Yes. But it's a gift. It's not something you can buy. Do we see it as a gift? Do we see it as something to be used for God? Or do we see it as something to be used for ourselves? 
Let's rejoice in the blessings that salvation brings for those who truly know God and make sure that we are among those who truly know God, not those who, like Simon, are seeking selfish gain connected with ministry. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at these truths, we certainly are challenged by the reality of just the danger that stands at hand if we see your power and we think that it's something that we can twist to our own ends. Lord, help us not to have that attitude. Help us instead to have the attitude that we must come before you in humble repentance, that you do pour out blessings and benefits and gifts connected with knowing you through your spirit through on the basis of what Jesus has done, and yet that's not something that we can presume upon. It's not something that we can uh, sort of... Uh, bend you to our will, but rather that you do these things freely and graciously of yourself. Lord, we look at the amazing way that you have uh, built your church, sent the gospel to the, the Jews, and some of them believed, many did not. You sent it to the Samaritans, and in the coming chapters we'll see that you sent it to the Gentiles, which I think probably is most of us, and we are so thankful that the gospel didn't stop with Stephen. It didn't stop uh, with Acts 7, but it continued to Acts 8 and Acts 10 and, and, and came to us as well. Lord, I pray that each of us would be genuinely believing in you today, that each of us would be following you as we should. Lord, help these truths to, to sink into our hearts and minds. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.